All right, let's go ahead and get started this morning. Good morning to you. Beautiful fall day. Beautiful fall weekend. I trust we will extend fall way into the winter season. We're going to take both the equip hour and the morning service to study our commitment to the word. Sola Scriptura. What does sola scriptura mean? Scripture alone. Scripture alone. The Bible is the only infallible, final authority for the Christian in all matters of faith and practice, our doctrine and our standards for living. R.C. Sproul said it this way, the Bible is the sole written Divine revelation, and it alone binds the conscience of the believer absolutely. Uh, So without any limits, the Bible's authority binds the thinking, the conscience of the believer, because it is the only written and divine revelation. Uh, So God has made himself known, and that becomes then the standard for how we understand God and truth, and then, thus, how we live our lives. Sola Scriptura. What are the other four solas? You'll get a head start reviewing them. You'll hear them again next hour. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Give me another one. Sola Gratia, Grace alone. Sola Fide, Faith alone, and it is fide. We're used to saying like bona fide, right? Oh, that's a bona fide. Well, it's bona fide uh, to stay consistent. Faith, Christus, solus Christus, Christ alone, and one more. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. The five pillars uh, that supported so much of Reformation thought. We want to consider uh, sola scriptura and think through this morning the authority of God's word in our lives, individually, our families, life of the church. Uh, To do this, I want to help you think through, it's a little bit of a philosophical kind of concept, and it does go all the way back to Aristotle in some of its definitions. Um, But there are Two terms that linger even today as we think through matters, and and these two terms are a material principle and a formal principle. Uh, Thoughts that help us understand how we're thinking through different topics. So the material principle of the Reformation. By material principle, we mean what was the content of the discussion of the Reformation? What was it all about? What was the focus of the Reformation debate? What was the material that was being argued? So can you think of one key word that would be the content or the material of the Reformation? And I'll give you a clue. It's not scripture, all right? But what is, what's, a, what's a key word that would kind of summarize what was the material or the content of Reformation debate? What do you think? 
salvation and uh, more nuanced justification. So obviously justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, but justification has been called the material principle of the Reformation. Um, in other words, what, what was the content? What was the debate about? So that's the material principle. What, what are we actually talking about? But then we would say there is a formal principle. And by formal principle we mean, what is it that shapes or forms our thinking, our arguments, our faith? By what authority do we make claims about the material principle? And what is the answer to that question? Sola Scriptura. The scriptures then shape our thinking and our conversation and our arguments. So the material principle of the Reformation, what was it about? What was about justification? Uh, and works excluded, you're only justified by the merit of Jesus Christ, which is received by faith. Uh, but where do we learn that? Where do we go to argue our material, our content? We go to the scriptures alone. Um, and so in a sense, the formal principle becomes foundational because that's where you're getting your arguments from. And we'll see that there are other ways to argue or we could say there are other authorities that we point to to make our case. But understand that the church, uh, from the time God chose to reveal himself, um, think back to Genesis uh, Genesis 2 in the garden. From the time God has revealed himself, those words have been the standard by which we must shape our knowledge of God and our lives lived in response to him. So if you hear material principle, formal principle, oftentimes you'll see that in reading about the Reformation and just know material principle, what is the material we're talking about? And the formal principle, what forms or shapes my thinking about this material? Let's look at a couple of scriptures just to remind us of the significance of the word in our lives. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll look here and then at Colossians 2. In 2 Timothy 3. Paul writes to Timothy, beginning in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, you likely know this verse by the word inspiration. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's just that word can kind of lose its value to us when we hear of, you know, a movie maker saying he was inspired by some story uh, to make this movie. Or a poem was inspired by the poet's love for his spouse. Or 
and you realize, okay, inspiration can kind of mean a lot of different things. So what is the actual word there in the original language? And it's this idea of being breathed out. So as the cool mornings come upon us, you go out there and you breathe out and you see that, that warm, moist air kind of materialize in the cold. And that helps us remember that God's word is breathed out. There, there's warmth and breath and life in it. Um, and so the scriptures are clear. The word of God is breathed out and by its source, it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. And all that profitability has a purpose, a design, that the believer, the man of God, may be complete, mature, through and through, ready for his purpose. And Ephesians 10 matches these words Here we see he's ready for every good work. Ephesians 2.10 tells us we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So if we're rooted in scripture, governed by that sole, sufficient, divine authority, sola scriptura, then we will be people characterized by good works. That's the plan in our new life in Christ and in the God-breathed word. It's no surprise then that in our neglect of the word, we, we define ourselves not just as sinning, but as out of sorts, just kind of cranky sometimes, um, cold, a little bit lifeless, just apathetic, all those words come to bear because if we're not near that breath and that warmth and that life of the scriptures, then we're not feeling equipped for every good work. The scriptures aren't bringing about their profitability that is what? The life of righteousness, every good work. Look over at Colossians 2. Here, the warning. Colossians 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. So there's a body of material that is the standard for which you're taught. And that teaching steers you to the walk of life, which is considered In Christ Jesus. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Christ is the standard. He's the living word. And, And we have the written word that unfolds him to us. Therein is the standard. Don't listen to anything else that's clamoring for your attention, that's arguing for its purpose, its worldview. The elemental spirits of the world. Again, you might remember the old language, the rudiments of the world. The rudimentary building blocks. If you went to the nursery and found wooden blocks with letters A, B, C, D on them, you could stack them up or arrange them and make letters. Well, One letter in and of itself doesn't make a 
you know, motivational speech. But when you take all those rudimentary letters and arrange them into words and sentences and thoughts, now suddenly an Adolf Hitler can motivate, can stir a crowd. Why? Because he took the rudimentary building blocks and he, and he shaped the world, at least the Third Reich, with words and the power of ideas. Here, Paul is warning us, don't, don't even buy into the, the, the initial building blocks of the ideas of the world. Measure them according to Christ. He would tell us that in 2 Corinthians 10. Bring every thought captive to this strict obedience of Christ. That's the only way you're going to get it right in this world. That's bombarding us with all the nonsense of the world. At first, it seems like nonsense. These people are insane. And then it's not too many years later where churches are adopting wholesale these ideas of the world. And it's because they ignored the warning. It's the rudimentary basic building blocks that we just miss them because they're small and they seem insignificant or even just stupid to us. No one would ever believe that, but it works its way into our thinking. So beware. In Christ dwells the fullness of deity, and we have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So this standard of Christ is our authority, not human tradition, not the ideas of the world, not any other elemental spirits, none of that philosophy, none of it. Abandon all other worldviews, all other claims of truth for the one standard, sola scriptura. Now, the problem is that replacing God's authority with some other authority is literally an age-old problem. So how far back in the scriptures can we go to find God's authority replaced by some other authority? All the way back to Eden. In the perfection of the garden, God puts man and then creates woman out of him, and there they are in the garden. This should work out great. In chapter 3, as the story of the fall unfolds, we have God coming to walk in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, God is a spirit, so whatever that meant for their fellowship together, it seemed like the normal process. So life in the garden is good. Benevolent God, benevolent commands, benevolence abounding all around them and every provision they would need. Everything God had made, including man and woman in the garden and their roles and their work responsibilities in chapter 1, verse at the end or at the beginning of chapter 2, God says was very good. And it seems like it'd be simple. Don't let anyone or anything take you captive, literally snatch you out of that goodness with philosophy or empty deceit, tradition, some other authority, some other worldview. Don't let anybody do that. And that, yet that's exactly what unfolds. Some kind of serpent accompanied with the devil's plan here comes into the garden and just suggests minor 
differences in what God had said. Rudimentary changes, really, has God said, and he pretty much got it right, but he kind of twisted it a little bit, and they weren't careful. There wasn't, there wasn't the, the championed cause or, or theme of sola scriptura, only what God has told us. Instead, it was, okay, I, I, I kind of remember what God has said, but here, well, that sounds interesting too. Maybe there's some truth to this. Maybe if, maybe if I did eat of the tree, I, I, I would have something I don't have now. And, and the thinking began to start grinding its way, but it wasn't in a positive direction. Uh, these gears that are moving now are beginning to dismantle sola scriptura. A singular, divine, absolute authority is now being compromised by the consideration of some other truth claim. Replacing God's authority with another authority. Well, how do we do this today? Well, I was reading this week and I came across three categories of authority. One, the authority of tradition. The authority of tradition. In the Reformation fight, it was the traditions of the church and the teachings of the Pope. So, of course, you know, Luther, when he posted his 95 theses, we could argue that even was sparked by this idea of indulgences. So the Catholic Church taught that when you died, you'd go to purgatory for a time of punishment and kind of purification for your imperfections. But it was, it was a limited time. It was finite. It just kind of depended how much punishment and purification you needed. Um, Luther didn't see this in Scripture, so he took issue with this. Um, not only the teaching of purgatory, but the selling of indulgences, which meant you could pay money to the church and kind of reduce the time that your loved ones would spend in purgatory. Kind of like buying a Monopoly get-out-of-jail-free card concept, all right? Um, see, the, the Catholic Church needed money. Uh, they were building all these elaborate buildings. You know, blame it on Michelangelo. He's the one that did the Sistine Chapel on Rome's dime, which they didn't even have, so they had to sell indulgences to pay for that piece of work. Um, he painted that just, I guess it's only two or three years before Luther posted his 95 Theses. Uh, so the Vatican area, all those buildings, St. Peter's Basilica, the Sistine Chapel and its beautiful ceiling, all of that was being lavishly built and there wasn't any money left, so they came up with this great you know, innovative plan to sell bad doctrine to people and scare them into giving money to the church. Well, Luther fought against this kind of authority of just tradition, stuff that wasn't rooted in Scripture, and yet it was being taught as the norm. Well, we might look forward to, or look backward to Jesus' day even, and of course the Pharisees lived this same kind of convoluted religious experience of God's truth. They had the Old Testament scriptures. That wasn't a problem, of course. The problem was that they added to that all of their own traditions. So this is nothing new. And frankly, even today, Bible-believing churches will still run into the hurdle 
of hearing people say things like, well, that, that's not the way we've always done things before, or I've never heard this before, and so it's, it's rejected simply because that's not the way we've always done it, or that's not the way we've always heard it. That is the weighty authority of tradition. Now, to be clear, the Reformers were not against other authorities. In the Latin, they would call it nuda scriptura, the fact that Scripture wasn't naked or by itself. They recognized the confessions of the church, the orthodox history of the church and how it had wrestled with Scripture. So they weren't arguing that Scripture alone is the only authority. They were saying it is the final, absolute authority. It has the final say. The church can speak, and it should. Those confessions and doctrines and creeds should be esteemed by believers and carefully considered, but they are not the highest authority. Scripture is. So the authority of tradition, we have to beware of that threat that we would resist truth because it's, it's something we haven't heard or done before. Secondly, there's the authority of self, self. Even back in the Reformation days, there were those called the radical reformers or the radical reformation, those who overreacted in different ways. Some of them were guilty of the iconoclasm, the destruction of anything that looked religious. They would destroy the idols, the statues of the church, but they would also destroy the churches, and they would also destroy those who worked in those churches at times. It was a violent mob kind of mentality, a vast overreaction and the use of violence to war against heresy and false teaching. Others, without the violence, though, rejected anything the church had ever said. They ignored church history, dismissed the creeds and confessions of the church, and took one absolute authority for their religious practice, and it was radical individualism. Whatever I think is true or right, generally in that era, as defined by something other than the Catholic Church. Um, but they weren't looking to scriptures. They were simply li- looking to live out what they felt would be the right response. If Rome got it wrong, I'll figure out how to get it right. One writer said the, re- the reformers were not innovators. There was nothing innovative. There was nothing new. They didn't sit around and think up some new ideas. No, they just actually went back to the very old ideas. Um, But the authority of self uh, is a huge challenge in our culture today. You pull out your Bible and you want to say, thus says the Lord, and you realize that people don't have time for that. That's that's antiquity. That's that's the old-fashioned, old-school stuff. Uh, What matters to them is how they feel, uh, what they know, what they've experienced. Uh, so the authority of self, beware, and perhaps gently even challenge uh, that terminology you might hear in a Bible study. Well, th- this is what this verse means to me. Well, it doesn't mean anything to you. It just means something. Uh, and I know not everyone who says that is radically trying to define their religion as a religion of self. 
Um, but we can't individualize authority. God breathed it out. And that standard now is the authority. It doesn't matter what I think or feel even. It's what is true. Uh, but that, you know, relativism rules our day. Um, and so it's what's true for you, that's fine. If you want to lean on the Bible and that religion, that, that's good for you. But I have my own truth. And this bleeds into another form of authority, and we'll call it the authority of experience. Again, when you read of the Reformation, even though it was a reaction against Rome with a lot of religious um, symbols and such, there was a craving for a new experience, a new practice of religion. And so people seeing in a sense, the deadness of Rome, uh, the lifeless approach to this religious kind of experience of mass, uh, they were longing for some new experience. So even the violence met a need in some who felt that religion needed some kind of life to it, some new experience, something they could feel almost tangibly. Well, Luther argued that there may be some validity to religious experiences, but they can never be disconnected from the authority of Scripture. Or else, you're now just drifting on the waves of what became known as existentialism. My existence, my experience defines everything. Whatever my experience is, that'll shape my truth, my thinking, my religion, my view of God. It's all about my experience. Luther said, I'm just not going to fight you on every religious experience. I'm only going to demand that you show me how Scripture informs the interpretation of that experience. Whether it feels religious, uh, revelatory, whatever it is, There is still a standard. You can think you experienced whatever you think, but it doesn't mean it's true. Truth will be rooted in sola scriptura. So today, we still have a lot of talk of experience exalted above the word. People will say, uh, preachers, men and women in pulpits, will say, well, I can see what the Bible says there, but we've just learned with, with culture and with experience that, you know, there is a better way. Or I can see what it says in the Bible, but for me, I found that, or it's been my experience because I was wounded or because I experienced this, I now have a different view on that. Well, that may be true. You have a different view, but Sola Scriptura says the standard hasn't changed. Your experience gets crushed by the bulldozer of sola scriptura. It gets flattened out. Whatever you inflated it to think it meant, it just got steamrolled by truth. And you can peel it off the road and examine it with new eyes and think, okay, what did I think this meant? Because it didn't hold up against the authority of scripture. You know, be careful of of what you read. You know, you can go to the Christian bookstore and find Half the books in there begin with somebody had a word from God and they, you know, because of their intimacy with God, they now have something to share with you. 
The Jesus Calling volumes now are filling the shelves with Jesus Calling for every nuance of demographic there is. Scrubbed from most of the recent editions is her initial emphasis on she heard from God because she used to read the Bible, but it wasn't enough. She wanted to really communicate with God. So violent was the backlash to those kind of words that they just basically tore out that prelude and kept publishing the books. I've read many of those devotional days to kind of get a sense of it, and it's not all bad. But just know she didn't hear from God anything new. Sola Scriptura is still the standard. It's not Sola Scriptura and, well, she heard from God, let let me apply this too. It's not how it works. The only authority is the Scriptures. It does not matter what you've experienced if that isn't rooted in how Scripture says God will work in our lives. You know, sexual ethics are at stake in our culture. The Bible's teaching on homosexuality is being disregarded simply because someone feels that they should be able to have their feelings the way they think they're inclined and the approval of the church. They think they should be able to have them both because that would be loving, would it not? But what's the standard? What's the standard for defining love? What's the standard for defining gender and sexuality? It's not our experience. There again, somebody's experience may be horrifically tragic and traumatic, and it may indeed, science and psychology shows us, point someone in a path of sexual perversion, sin. But it is not the final word on the matter in the context of how grace can redeem and in the context of what is true. Your experience and your truth, or the truth that you claim to be yours relatively, uh, must be submitted to the authority of Scripture. Uh, This battle for sola scriptura will be seen again and again. You watch the news, you know, business practices, anything governments do and anything you're seeing in the world, Russia invading Ukraine, and you'll have people that suddenly want to speak with some kind of weight, some perspective, but what does it really mean if it's not grounded in some kind of truth? And where do we find absolute truth? The reformers were clear. We have a standard for faith and practice. Here's an interesting Latin expression they used to define the scriptures. Kind of builds or goes with sola scriptura. Norma, normans, non, normata. All right, that's a lot of norm in there, okay? Norma, normans, non, normata. The norm of norms that cannot be normed. This is what the Bible is. It is the norm. It is the standard of all standards. And it can never be calibrated. It can never be adjusted or tweaked. Like, oh, that's, not, that's a little old or that's off. That doesn't apply anymore. No, it cannot be normed by any other influence or force or truth claim. So spout that off next time you're, you know, at the water cooler in the workplace and hear some 
crazy idea, right? Norma, Normans, non normata, and they'd think. I don't know. It sounded like Allah Akbar or something. I don't know <laughs> what he's about to do, but uh, no. The Bible is the norm of all norms, the standard of all standards that cannot be standardized, all right? It is the compass of all compasses that can't be recalibrated or adjusted. It is always right and true for us. So now I want you to think on a couple of ideas on how sola scriptura becomes practical uh, even in the weekly gathering of the local church. So what are some ways that sola scriptura and this kind of battle cry of the Reformation becomes practical or should become practical in a weekly gathering of the local church? What do you think? Preaching based on uh, scripture rather than opinion. Scripture rather than opinion. All right. You're well entitled and even um, commissioned to hear what's said in a sermon and think truth, is it flowing from a standard of God's truth or does that sound a little more like opinion? Which, that's fine. You can respect my opinion if you respect me as a person, but you, you don't have to be bound by that. Remember what Sproul said, only divine revelation binds the conscience of the believer absolutely. Your conscience may be influenced or even you might even say bound by someone's opinion whom you respect greatly, uh, but only scripture can do it absolutely. So every Sunday, you're sitting there listening and as David said, you should be thinking, is that the weight of authority of scripture or did that drift a little? I'm not saying that'll never happen, so you need to be on your game as much as I need to be on mine or any other teacher would be. So good, just in the, even in the listening and discerning. What else? Daniel? A challenge to each other, where sola scriptura, if not on your mouth, using the Latin phrase every Sunday as we gather, you're, you're considering what people are sharing with you about dealing with this boss in the workplace and it's so frustrating, or the, what are these letters? Equity, E, DEI. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's frustrating some of you uh, as you hammer this out in the workplace and you're trying to be salt and light, trying to stand for truth, trying to understand these people are lost. They, they, they don't have a compass, so you're trying to be loving and compassionate, but you realize, you know, it's a spiritual battle. Well, remember, when, when somebody's sharing all that, what does the Bible say? How does Scripture help them think that through? Good. So even in your communication to each other, what else? Yeah. I find uh, what helps me out throughout the week is just like a workout routine. It's like repetitious. Like I read whatever day the proverb of the day that falls on. Right. And it's awkwardly convenient how that proverb specifically on that day applies. Conveniently, 
and then uh, follow up with the three random songs. And uh, somehow, someway, the rest of the day goes awesome. <laughs> so this regular workout in the Word, a regular diet of the Word, Colossians 3, let that word of Christ dwell in you richly so you're filled, your tank is full, and now when you engage with others, it spills out, and that truth is there. The encouragement of the Psalms, wisdom of the Proverbs, the looking back on the history of how God has dealt with his people, his faithfulness, all these things instructing us in our daily living. You know, the preaching of the word. Uh, the reading of scripture and services. Years ago, we were convicted of very little scripture other than the sermon text and realized there should be more scripture. That, that should be a standard. That was, that was part of the awakening of the Reformation. Let God's word do its work. Uh, when asked how this whole Reformation blew up, Luther said, I did nothing. While I slept and drank Wittenberg beer, the word did everything. Um, we know Luther was a bombastic character who did a, a lot, but his point was that there was no human effort that could bring about this kind of worldwide change. That was the authority of the word. And when, when the church kind of got out of the way, or at least the pure church, and let the word speak, that authority was found to be wise and benevolent and powerful and life-giving so we let the word loose um, in our own conversations, in the corporate gathering of the church, in our weekly study of the word. Uh, let its authority uh, have its reign. There's two other principles I want us to talk about. Have you heard of the regulative principle of worship and the normative principle you say, oh man, I was just trying to get material principle and formal principle, and now you're adding regulative and normative. Regulative principle of worship. What does that mean? Somebody want to take a stab at it? Something's regulated in worship. Yeah, Roy? Find the basis for what you do as part of your service in something of Scripture. Right, so you have to have a scriptural mandate or at least really obvious example or demonstration in order to implement that in worship. Or to say it the other way, the regulative principle forbids anything in worship that is not commanded or exemplified in scripture. So whatever you're going to do in corporate worship, we're saying scripture is the authority, so it has to tell us, do this in worship. And there we would find things like singing or preaching, praying, confessing sin. Uh, a lot of those elements that would be in churches, they would say that's based on the regular principle. We do this because it is clearly regulated, mandated by Scripture. Uh, now, obviously, there's debate on different things there, like can you use musical instruments? Uh, a lot of um, folks that would be strict adherence to a regulative principle would say that, especially in the New Testament, there's no clear mandate to use instruments, and so they don't. Um, uniquely, oftentimes, those people sing only the psalms, and maybe they just don't sing the ones with cymbals and drums and horns and harps, but um, 
Somehow they would argue the New Testament doesn't clearly mention instruments and so they don't use them. Those kind of debates rage. But the regulative principle forbids anything not commanded by Scripture. What about the normative principle then? How would we articulate kind of the other principle here that's at work? Still under sola scriptura. This is still the crowd of people that want the Bible to be the authority for how we go about functioning in the church. One of them, regulative principle, if the Bible mandates it, we can do it. What's kind of the opposite of that? If it's not forbidden in Scripture explicitly, that it's at least under the principles of Scripture, it's deemed acceptable. Right. So it's allowed if it's not strictly forbidden by Scripture, and strictly meaning specifically. And so should the local church use PowerPoint slides for singing or for the sermon outline? Some would say absolutely not because they they camp out permanently on the regulative principle and the Bible never commands using Microsoft tools in the worship of the church, right? Um, Drama, um, special music. Uh, There's a lot of things that you could put in there that churches might say, "I, I don't know if that has a place Well, what makes them kind of think that way? Or how do they argue? Well, without even knowing it, they're probably thinking regulative principle or normative principle, both of them helping us understand that sola scriptura really does come into play in the weekly gathering of the church. Without churches all over our city realizing it, they're they're practicing these principles in one way or another. They might not have the labels, and you don't need to remember them either. But just know that sola scriptura means the Bible has authority. And as it's by the church always kind of been defined, that's in all matters of faith and practice. Our faith, the body of doctrine, and our practice, how we go about living in the church and at home, our individual lives, God has spoken, and those words should mean something to us. That's the essence of sola scriptura. What does the Bible say? And now, I have a choice to make. Will I obey it or not? It's the same choice that was in the garden, same choice of God's people in the Old Testament. How long will you halt between two opinions? Uh, The prophet asked, uh, Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve. You know what God wants. Are you going to do it or not? Jesus lays out that gauntlet as well. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, The scriptures of the New Testament letters unfold all these warnings. Will you hear the authority of scripture or will the traditions and philosophies of the world creep in? Revelation concludes with, here's the authority of God's word. Don't add anything to it or take away from it because this is the final authority on the matter. What does the Bible say? Heavenly Father, help us to answer that question to know from your word what you have said, and then to surrender our lives to it, knowing that your word will guide us down the path of life and joy, the life of righteousness, which is ours by faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you for not leaving us without direction. Thank you for revealing to us these things 
that are for our good and for the good of our children, Deuteronomy tells us. Make us faithful students of the word, lovers of the word, and doers of the word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.